Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Hits Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got to have a great show for you tonight. We're going to be starting off here in just a moment with Coach's Corner panel, and I'll bring the guys out here in just a minute. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by this evening's uh, special guest, Linda Harto. She's a world-renowned golf landscape painter, and uh, she's been on the show a number of times, but she's going to come back again tonight, and we're going to talk about some of the things that she's working on now and some of the things that she's done in the past and uh, a whole bunch of other things, too, so I hope you'll stick around and join us. Don't forget, we're live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central for those of you on Central Time and for the East Coasters, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, Um, and we're live. And if you want to catch us uh, afterwards, if for some reason, if you're not able to uh, join us live uh, or certainly uh, not the whole show, perhaps, uh, you can catch it in its entirety in the recorded version. Just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live and just scroll down to the on-demand section and you will find it there. But for those of you tuning in live, Uh, This evening, thank you as always, and uh, we're going to get started. So let me introduce the guys here on the Coach's Corner panel, and then we'll get into tonight's discussion. Uh, Always uh, a pleasure having this uh, gentleman on uh, with me. He's been uh, one of the early birds, if you will, uh, on the the Coach's Corner panel. Of course, I'm talking about Clint Wright. He's a 30-plus year member of the PGA and one of the partners at TGM Golf. Uh, TGM, of course, is a big proponent of the R3 approach, which we've talked about numerous times on the show over the years. Uh, and I consider him to be certainly among one of the best covering the short game and always a favorite guest here on Coach's Corner. And another gentleman, also I uh, like to call him a good friend as well, Brian Dobby. He's a, a PGA teacher professional and currently uh, working at the Trump National in Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, formerly at the Montclair uh, Golf Club, where he spent 18-plus years uh, uh, teaching there and also winning five New Jersey section awards. Uh, he was in 2012 the Teacher of the Year and has also been ranked number seven in Golf Digest Top Teachers in New Jersey. So, guys, uh, Clint and Brian, welcome once again to Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Hey, Ted, Great to be with you, Ted. Thanks for having us. Always a, not a pleasure. Always, always a pleasure to have you guys on, and I'm looking forward to tonight's discussion. So uh, we're going to talk about a few different things here, um, but I'll just give you a, sort of a heads up and what we're going to, the general flow of what we're going to talk about. So in this particular episode of Coach's Corner, we're going to discuss uh, and provide some tips for a wide range of trouble shots that you might be faced with in golf. So we're going to talk about everything from awkward lies to even some difficult weather, some of the challenges that you might uh, find uh, out in the golf course, especially as we get ready to, uh, for some of you anyway, especially up in the Northeast, you're getting ready to 
uh, get out of that winter thaw. For those of you in the southeast uh, and southwest, of course, you've had a little bit of an advantage um, to uh, keep your game uh, up to snuff. But for those of you that are coming out of a winter hibernation, as we like to call it, uh, here's some good tips that are going to help you uh, hopefully get ready for a good uh, solid season this year. Um, so, Brian, I'm going to start with you, uh, if you don't mind, uh, this time, even though I know I introduced it the other way around with Clint first. I'm going to start with you, and then, Clint, I'm going to get you to, to follow up. Um, so, Brian, one of the first things I want to tackle is playing from sloping lies. So, as an example, um, you know, ball might be below your feet, uh, might be above your feet, uh, could be a side hill, you know, downhill, what have you. Um, we're never going to find a perfectly flat spot on the golf course, uh, not too often, uh, not even on the putting surface these days. Um, and a lot of people don't really understand how to handle this type of thing. So just give us maybe one example. I know we don't have the uh, benefit of a visual here, so just sort of give us a general idea, maybe give an example if the ball's above or below your feet, uh, if it's a side hill, downhill, just sort of explain what that means. And then give some general tips of what people need to do to make sure they're making good, solid contact and they're making the appropriate adjustments um, in that particular situation. So just give, maybe give us an example or two of what, uh, what we're talking about here. Great, great question, Sid. And, again, thanks for having me on the show. You know, trouble shots up here in the Northeast, we get a lot of hilly courses and stuff, and uh, usually the only flat area is on the tee box. So for, for an example – I'll start with, um, you know, the ball closer to you on a side hill lie. So we have to think about the direction the ball is going to move with the slope, okay, number one. So if the, if the ball is above your feet, the ball is going to pull towards the left, below your feet, push to the right. Um, so knowing where the ball is generally going to go, we can adjust our aim a little bit, a, l- a little bit more to the right for the uphill lie, a little bit more for the uh, downhill eye. Um, now, the other thing we have to consider is the strike of our arc in the ground. And typically when the ball is closer to us on, a, on an uphill, uh, side hill uphill lie, we have to adjust the length of the club. And this is where I think a lot of amateurs don't make that um, distinction in their setup. They, they grip the club right. normal length and they end up hitting behind the ball because the hill is closer to them and the, and the ball is closer to them. So what I like to do is set up first and kind of measure out my right arm to see um, the length I needed on the club. And then the second thing is ball position. Say, again, we're talking about the ball above your feet a little bit. It's going to pull to the left. We have to aim to the right. And I'll, I'll put the ball position back a little in my stance and make sure – um, I take some practice swings to see where my divot is and, and to make sure that um, ball's in the right place. And then the last thing I consider is my shoulder alignment. Are my shoulders even with the slope? And in this case, they would be uh, tilted down a little to the right. That's what puts the ball position back. So there's a lot of setup things that have to be considered when the ball is in different, um, not, a, not a level lie. Okay, so that that would be the first thing. And then um, I think we tend, when we practice, we tend to only practice on flat lies. So if we can add some uphill, downhill, sidehill lies into our practice routine and get a feel for the direction the ball's going, we can make some subtle adjustments in our setup 
um, but we have to practice those shots, okay? And then the last consideration is how is the lie going to change the loft of the club face, okay? Is the, um, the lie going to add loft, take loft off? And, and again, um, uh, we need to make those adjustments when we make the shot. Right, well said. Yeah, there's a lot of adjustments to be made. And I, I just want to, excuse me, ask you a follow-up, and then, Clint, I'll give you an entirely different question. Um, and, and I'm going to use two examples here, uh, Brian, if you don't mind. I'm going to start with the, with the ball above your feet, um, and then I'll do the, the ball below your feet. When the ball is above your feet on that side hill, uphill lie, um, you mentioned about obviously trying to adjust where you're gripping on the club because the, the ground is obviously and the ball is going to be a little closer to you. Um, do you right. have a sense or a feeling that you're standing up a little bit more? You're not quite as in the same position because the ball is above your feet. Again, obviously it depends on the, on the amount of um, that shot. And then conversely, if the ball is below your feet, again, depending on how much below um, on that side hill, downhill lie, do you feel like you're, you're sort of lowering your center? So you're getting a little bit more scrunch down like in lowering your center of gravity to get to the ball a little bit because if you're taking a normal stance it's it's uh, i think a little bit difficult in some cases depending on the variance so is that sort of the feeling that you want people to have is when the ball's above that it's almost feeling like they're standing up a little bit more not quite as much knee flex and when their ball is below again depending on the severity that they're going to feel like they're flexing a little bit more is that is that uh, online you think most most definitely you know Great point, Ted, and, and yes. So take take the downhill lie when the ball's below your feet. I think that's the hardest one out of the four because, number one, how do we reach the ball? So say that the slope of the hill is about three inches below ground. You've got to flex over more to reach it, use the whole club. You've got to figure out a way to, to lengthen and get down to that golf ball. And I think that when when the body flexes over like that, we're going to lose power, but we're also going to lose some balance. So in the mm-hmm. in that situation, I would take club, swing easy, and try to maintain my balance. But very good point. Yes, a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, and I think all for the side yeah, sorry, go ahead. and a bit more flexion on the on the downhill when the ball's away from you. Great point. Yeah, because. Yeah, because especially on on the ball below your feet, a lot of times if you take your normal stance and you don't make those adjustments, then the club doesn't lay correctly on the slope. And a lot of times you get into situations where you're not making good club face content. You're maybe hitting the shaft uh, where shank might come into to play or what have you. You're not making you're not really exposing the club face the way it needs to be on that ball. So those adjustments are extremely important. And you're right, we see a lot of people that miss the boat on that. Clint, I want to go to you now. Yeah, I want to go to you now on this, and I want to approach. Um, we're going to talk about the slope a little bit, but instead of the ball above and below your feet, now we're going to talk about where. Um, for and I'm going to use the right-handed uh, club golfers here. Sure. Um, where the ball is on the left side is higher, so you're sloping. Uh, your your right leg sure. is actually lower. Then you're, and, and then conversely, the other way where uh, right. your right side is, is higher because the ball, you're hitting downhill. So talk about that. What adjustments do we need to make there? Because it's a little bit different than the ones Brian right. was talking about. And how do we make sure we're making good contact? And what about clubs? Do we make adjustments there as well? Well, I've always just uh, have a rule of thumb on the uphill and downhill lies 
uh, is we want to always play the ball more towards our highest foot. As you described it, if, if my left foot, I'm going down the hill, then my right foot's going to be higher than my left foot, so I'm going to, I'm going to cheat back towards my highest foot either way. Does that make sense? And yep. so, therefore, there's that rule of thumb. And just to throw in what you and Brian were talking about, uh, my rule of thumb I tell people is the ball, the ball is most likely to fly downhill. So if the ball's below your feet, it's going to fly to the right. If it's above your feet, it's going to fly to the left. And so those are just some general rules of thumb on what you're talking about. But so if I can, again, accommodate myself to the slope, it's the thing you hear a lot of people talk about. You know, you've got to get your shoulders accommodating. If you do play the ball towards your highest foot, it's obvious then that your, that your lower side is going to drop down and the high side is going to go up. So that helps you accommodate your shoulders and hips to the slope. Now, how far back you play that obviously comes down to the severity of uphill or downhill, okay? So you just have to, like Brian made a point, you, you need to practice some of these things. But unfortunately, a lot of your practice areas don't have an uphill-downhill slope area uh, right. unless it's on the side of the tee box or something. So it's, there's quite a few little training aids you can find out there uh, if you really want to get into that, that kind of gives you some slope that you can lay down a mat or whatever to get some some idea. Uh, as far as club selection is concerned, um, obviously if we're going uphill, we're adding loft to the club. So if I've got the ball more towards the left side going up the hill, let's just take an example, a 150-yard shot or 130-yard shot. Uh, again, depending on the severity, you're going to have to go up you know, go up and club. You need something's going to hit a little further because that uphill slope is going to turn your nine iron into a pitching wedge or, right. you know, an eight iron into a nine. So you, you have to be able to understand that that's going to sling the ball higher, so therefore the ball may not go quite as far. But on a downhill slope, it's just the reverse of that. You'll find that that, that downhill slope is going to take a little off, off the club at impact. So, you know, if you got a nine iron shot, it's fairly downhill, you might be able to hit a pitching wedge. The one thing that I find people have struggled with, particularly on downhills, is to understand what the square club face looks like. I see a lot of times people, when I'm playing with them, they, they will hit that downhill lie to the right because they don't adjust the club face to get it square to the downhill. Right. It'll always be open if you're not careful. But if it's square to that downhill, it's going to look a little bit closed. So they, they need to make those adjustments. So in, in reality, uh, the kind of the rule of thumb, always play the ball towards your highest foot. And if you're going up the hill, you go up and club. If you're going down the hill, you go down and club. Those to me are just some real good general ideas that you, if you can remember, then you can make those uh, balance adjustments and club selection uh, a little easier. Yeah, well said. Um, great, great answers, guys. And, you know, just to, to add just very quickly uh, about that, you know, what, what we often see, um, especially with the examples that you just gave, uh, Clint, is we often see, especially when the ball is, is above, uh, you know, uh, on the left side is higher, um, we see a lot of people leaning into the slope, which is wrong. You need to have your shoulders uh, need to be parallel to the slope so that you're not, because otherwise right. what you're doing is you're, when you're um, taking the club back and you're coming into the ball, then what you're doing is you're hitting in behind. You're actually hitting very hard into 
the ground and you're not going to you're going to chunk it or what have you. So it's very important to get your shoulders, and that's a good rule of thumb is to move the ball depending on which foot is higher uh, closer to that foot and make sure that that allows you. Uh, you might even have to widen the stance a little bit in some cases to, to again depending on the severity to get that other um, position so that your shoulders are more in line with the slope. And you'll find that besides those uh, um, you know, adjustments that you've talked about, you really don't need to do anything else other than the club selection. In some cases, again, depending on the severity, you might even have to go up two clubs uh, if you're hitting up and, and uh, you know, two down, again, depending on the distance. But you have to know that, and those are shots you have to practice on all the way around. All four of those shots are shots that most people just do not get. Um, they might practice a little bit when they're in a lesson uh, with their coach or their instructor, but then once they're gone, they never practice them again. And then they're faced with those types of lies, as you know, Brian, you talked about up in uh, your neck of the woods in New Jersey, and certainly is down here as well. Uh, there's a lot of slopey uh, fairways out there, and and uh, you know you've got to be prepared to uh, to adjust accordingly. And a lot of folks don't. Brian, I'm going to come back to you on this uh, next one, and that hitting out of a thick rough or a heavy lie uh, might be also referred to. Uh, there's a number of options here, again, depending on the distance. Um, it, certainly club selection is going to play. So maybe just give us an example. Again, pick a yardage that, uh, you know, quite commonly might uh, somebody might be faced with, uh, uh, you know, in a par four, let's say, and what are some of the options depending on the severity of the thickness of that rough? What are some options? What do they need to do? Uh, adjustments do they need to make in their setups? Sure, that's a great question, Ted. And, you know, we tackle this a lot in playing lessons. You know, I'm always curious about what uh, clubs people are picking. So let's say we're far four, 400-yard far four, and we've got like 180 in, okay, and the rough is the ball sitting down in the rough. The first thing we have to consider is looking at the ball and see how much grass is around that ball and how low the ball is sitting. So grass is just friction. So I teach my students, the more grass around it, Stop thinking about getting the, the ball on the green and adding more loft to the club to get the ball out in play. You know, and now there's some, there's some courses up here where the roughs get so thick, the only club you can even consider is a sand wedge to get back in play. So um, first rule is what loft can I get it out of? And then I worry about the distance second, okay? Now, a couple things in setup that I like to do is, Typically, the rough will start to close the club face as you make impact. So I like, to, I like to play a little cut shot out of the rough. I make sure my face is a little open. I like to add a little loft because I know the grass is going to grab the hosel and shut the face down. So I try to put the ball, um, open up the face a little bit, and try to play like a high cut out of the rough. That's my go-to shot. I don't try to hit it kind of straight or or thinking draws out of the rough if the, if the grass is heavy. So more loft, I might choke down a little bit and grip the club a little tighter in my left hand so it doesn't twist. But we have to know the, the, the things that are probably going to happen once that club and grass gets between the golf ball, okay? It's going to twist it. We're going to lose loft. We're going to lose direction because of the face, things I think you can control a little bit if you – if you if you use more loft and try to play a little cut shot. Yeah, well said. Uh, and, and again, it, it, when you're dealing with some of these awkward lies and, and difficult situations that you're going to be faced with, Clint, a lot of times, 
it really boils down to it's not just um, you know club selection that it's really course management you have to really assess the situation and make a decision on what's going to be the best option here so maybe you can touch a little bit on this as well I know Brian's already talked about it but I think from a strategy standpoint we might have to look at options um, as he pointed out you know instead of um, you know trying to go for the green maybe look at some other options and just getting it back into play. So maybe you can touch on this as well, and, and also some different clubs. I mean, he talked about, you know, maybe going to something like even like a sandwich just to plug it out. There's a lot of people that say, you know, hey, maybe you might want to consider uh, a fairway wood or a uh, hybrid now uh, to pop it out there because you're not getting as much resistance as you would with some of your longer irons. What are some other options that you can think of that could help people that get stuck in those uh, thick rough or, or heavy lies? Well, to be honest with you, I've covered it pretty good. Um, you know, my, you know, uh, Brian's right on the money. I mean, you have to make, you know, evaluations. Now, where he's at, you're generally going to have fescue or bluegrass um, or bentgrass uh, rough. Down here and a little further south, we have Bermuda. So we don't see that real thick, juicy type, rough that they see in the north so we play probably a little bit more aggressively out of the rough than what you might up there um mm. seldom do we see the shot here that you have to just get back in play so your point about different clubs is a very good one i mean if i'm i'm 180 yards away uh in the bermuda rough or I, i'm not going to be able to get my four iron up out of there so the hybrid becomes a, a great option. Uh, I think most everybody today has got that hybrid club in their bag. A fairway wood is still going to come off like a three wood or something, still going to come off pretty low. So the whole right. objective is to get the ball airborne as quick as possible, to get it up and out of there. Um, so I, I agree with you, Ted. I mean, the hybrid is a, a wonderful option to do that. But uh, But on the other side, you know, I was always taught, don't take your wedge and putter out of play. Uh, mm -hmm. if, if you just, you know, let's say you're at your distance, you know, range a little bit, at 180, 170. Uh, we all know that most of the trouble is in front of the greens. Uh, so why not take Brian's advice here? Let's lay this thing up to a good yardage for my sand wedge or gap wedge. Make sure I get the ball on the green. Give myself a chance to make a par, but the worst of all makes a bogey. Yeah. Um, and in some of the rough areas that, that you deal with uh, all around, I mean, hitting it in the rough sometimes is just a, a penalty shot. You have to take your medicine, but don't take the putter out of your hand. Get it on the green and that, that next shot, uh, and then try to make a putt. Who who'd say you can't hit your wedge in two or three feet and make a putt and save par? But I do yeah. know if you overplay the rough, if you overplay it, you bring in a much bigger score into play. So my right. advice to them is to try to pick the shot that you can be 100% successful with. You know, don't overplay the shot and just give yourself a chance to make a putt for par. Yeah, it boils down to percentage. I mean, you're exactly right. I That's mean, obviously, right. It, you know, the higher the percentage of recovery or getting it out of that situation uh, with, with a high percentage of success, is an option that that needs to be seriously looked at again we see too many times where uh you know as brian pointed out you see well it's only 180 yards i can hit this there 
and they try to muscle it out and it ends up the, you know, the hosel gets caught, the face shuts down and they've ended up either staying in the rough, maybe just a few yards ahead, or they ended up blocking it out uh, somewhere and it ends up on the other side, maybe in the rough on the other side of the fairway. So again, you want to, I think, assess what the situation is, what trouble lays ahead if you've got a pond or you've got something that you've got to carry over to get to the green, then that becomes now uh, an additional uh, sort of, you know, do not go sign, if you will, and, and should be factored in when you're making your decision. But the bottom line is you want to decide what's the best option. And as you pointed out, Clint, it's better to lay up and put yourself in a position for that next shot and give yourself a stronger chance for uh, saving that par or even worst case scenario, taking the lump and only coming out with a bogey as opposed to a double or a triple bogey. So well said. Um, Brian, I'm going to come back to you on this one. This is sort of a, an opposite situation uh, where you might find yourself in a bear lie. Maybe uh, uh, there's a, a large divot that somebody's uh, not bothered filling in or repairing. Uh, the ground uh, hasn't been wet for a few days or very much, and now all of a sudden you've got a bear lie, and uh, it's a little dry and maybe even a little packed. Uh, uh, some people call it hard pan. Uh, I don't know what you call it, but uh, it can be uh, nasty for those. What do we do in a situation like this? Great, great question, Ted. I, I think this shot starts with your attitude, okay? Your attitude on when you walk, you hit a perfect drive down the middle and it's sitting in a little divot hole or something like that. How you deal with that, with your attitude, is going to really affect the shot. So just say, hey, Golf is a game of sometimes my ball just happens sometimes. I got to deal with it. But if, if you go in it with the attitude of, oh, my gosh, bad break, stuff like that, you're probably going to hit a bad shot. So first off, have a good attitude and just say, hey, I can still advance this ball. It might not be the lie I wanted, but that's golf. That, that's, it happens to all of us. Okay, so number two, so we got a bare lie. So we have to think angle of attack. The ball's a little down in a – in a little hole, you know, say it's, if it's a divot hole, it's probably down a quarter of an inch or so. And we have to create a steeper angle of attack. So what I would do is I would, number one, put the ball back in my stance and a little bit more weight on my left foot, club traveling down to catch the ball first and hopefully get it out of there. Okay. And the, and the second thing is whatever the distance is, we're probably not going to hit it like we do a normal lie in the fairway, all right? So we have to consider um, the choking down and the ball back and de-lofting the club. The ball's probably not going to go as far as, as usual. And, again, this goes back to our last question. Maybe we need to punch it out to a certain distance where we would have a wedge in or something like that. We have to, we have to always consider, you know what, this lie is dictating what I can do and you have to take what the golf guys give you sometimes. So those are my suggestions there. But I think the number one thing is attitude. If you have a good attitude and say, you know what, I can still get this on, you're probably going to hit a pretty good shot out of there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it all also boils down, as you said, attitude, but also confidence too. I think if you're able to put yourself in a position to practice, and we'll touch on that a little, in a little bit, but uh, you know, practice some of these different things that we're talking about then that helps give you a sense of understanding, okay, this is what I've got to do. And obviously every situation is going to vary slightly. Uh, you're never going to get two exact situations. But if you get a general idea, okay, in a situation like this, here's what typically I'm going to have to do. Maybe a few fine-tuned adjustments might have to happen. 
but generally here's how I'm going to handle the situation. And when you practice them uh, a little bit, you know, people always say, well, it's kind of boring, just, you know, my practice sessions that, well, here's a great opportunity to use a little imagination um, practicing in some of these situations we're talking about, making it interesting and seeing how to handle those because you're going to be faced with them. I guarantee it as both of you know, and and I do, um, you're going to be faced with them. Uh, Clinton, here's one that um, I'm going to go to you now with this one here. Um, and, and there could be a variety of situations. Just maybe give us an example, one or two. Um, you might be in the rough in this situation, or you might be in a position, depending it's down here, particularly where you're on uh, sitting on pine straw. Um, uh, you might want to do both of those. Um, you might find yourself in the trees, in the pines a little bit, uh, with some sort of a shot, or you might be in a situation where you've hit into the rough, uh, left or right, and you've maybe got to go around or even above or below uh, a tree branch or something. So just give us maybe one or two examples. We're dealing with the trees is basically what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Just give us one or two examples of how maybe going below and maybe going above, what do we need to do in a situation like that? What are our options? And when when should we okay. decide or what should be the deciding factor on whether we take the risk or not? Well, I, <laughs> I think Brian made a, a, a great point about attitude. I mean, if uh, I hit it in those situations, I mean, heck, anybody may par out of the middle of fairway with a good lie. I mean, you got it over there where you're not supposed to be. Now the challenge begins as if you can, you know, what you can do. Most importantly, I think that if you understand, we just, the attitude is we don't want to let one errant shot turn into three or four more. Okay. So I've got it in the pine straw, or I've got it in the trees, and I've got a little opening here. You have to evaluate what your skill level is. Uh, can I hit that seven iron through that four-foot square hole up there? Uh, do I have that skill level, or do I need to just punch this thing back out in the fairway? Don't let my bad drive multiply into three or four more bad shots. Uh, right. And and again, come back to that thing we talked about. Can I wedge it on and make a putt? Now. In in the case where you, okay, I'm going to take a chance here. I'm out here just playing a little bit of golf today. Me and my buddies, we're not playing in a tournament. We're, we're, we, we, we may have a, a dollar aside going. But I'm going to find out if I have the capabilities of hitting it through that hole. I'm going to take a chance today to find mm-hmm. out if I can. I have to evaluate my skills sooner or later. And we don't have that opportunity on the practice tee. Uh, you know, right. to have that visual of, of hitting in there. So you got to find out sooner or later where you really pull it off. Uh, if you don't feel like you can pull it off where you're trying to minimize the, the problems you're in, then, again, I choose the shot I can be 100% successful with. I don't want to play safe and then create another problem. I want to be able to be 100% sure that I can make this shot. Now, so in your particular question, whether it's an, uh, trying to hit it low or hit it hit it higher, uh, it's obvious we want to hit the ball low. We want to move the ball back in our stance to get that angle of attack down uh, to try to pinch the ball and uh, take loft off whatever club I have. Um, my basic rule of thumb is, is if I've got to hit it low, I want to use a club that I'm guaranteed to hit it low with. So right. a lot of times, if I get in those situations, you might find me chipping and pitching it out with a three-wood because I know I can't get that ball in the air. 
All right, I don't want to take a chance of maybe catching my five iron a little bit better than I thought and it pop up in the tree. I'm going to take a club yep. that I know is going to take it out of there low. Um, like today I played and I had a situation where I didn't hit a good drive, and the only real shot I had was to take my driver and try to run it on the ground, and uh, and that's what I did. I, it, it kind of got out or kind of didn't really. It hit the tree, and it was a bigger <laughs> problem. So one of those, my skill level today wasn't good enough. But if I want the ball to go higher, then obviously I want to give myself as much loft as I can to carry it, you know, let's say I've got a 120 or 30-yard shot. I need to kind of play that. I'm going to hit a club. I've really got to hit good to make it go that far, but it's going to give me enough trajectory uh, to get over that tree. Uh, and that comes, you can practice that on the practice tee, just trying to hit your pitching wedge or nine iron as high as you can hit it. And the way we would encourage people to do that is play the ball a little bit more up in the stance, which is going to get the club moving through a little bit past the bottom, which is going to help me catch it on the upswing a little bit, uh, which may help us loft the, loft the ball a little bit more with it. Uh, but in general speaking, um, when you get in those circumstances, again, I, obviously you, you understand that, that I preach to be a little more conservative uh, mm -hmm. in, in the approach to playing these shots. Not to let it, not let one shot. We want to have one shot added to our score. We don't want to start multiplying. And if we're a little yeah. more conservative in those cases, uh, I think we we come out better in the end, no matter where you're at. Yeah, you, you've got to. I think you, more importantly, you have to play to your ability. Um, you know, obviously, uh, a lower handicap golfer that has taken the opportunity to practice some of these, that has developed that confidence, as we, you know, uh, mentioned here a moment ago. Um, might be a little bit more, can be a little bit more aggressive on these, unless, you know, obviously in a situation where a tournament's involved and you're really not looking to add those extra digits. Um, um, and, and as you said, if you're just out with, with your friends and just having a, a fun time and it's not really, you know, uh, a lot of money riding on it, you know, then you can take, uh, you know, as long as you're not holding people up, you can take a, a little bit of a, an aggressive route there just to see, hey, what are my abilities here? Because, again, there are some situations which present a challenge to practice on, on the uh, practice tee. Um, but, uh, again, you need to play to your level. There's, you know, we see this stuff on TV all the time. You see the pros doing stuff, and then we see these, especially these young guys out there, well, I'm going to try this and I'm going to do that. And, you know, instead of maybe saving their par or bogey at the worst, they're now walking away with an eight because they're clinking through the trees or, uh, you know, catching a branch here and there or what have you, or they're just hitting a bad shot altogether. So, again, you have to – it goes back to that strategy. You have to be willing to, to accept what is the best option for me, not what your other guys are doing, what's my best option, and then adjust accordingly. Uh, Brian, I'm coming back to you, and, and this one here sure. deals with the bunker. Yeah, it deals with the bunkers. Uh, not your typical bunker shot. I think most people have that uh, handled uh, pretty well, but uh, there might be a situation where uh, the, ball, uh, the ball plugs – into the sand, uh, and again, you know, it could be a variety of different reasons. It could be just uh, in the middle. It could be on an up or down slope. Um, but we're dealing with where we don't have a clean shot. It's plugged in the in the lie somewhere, up, down, sideways, or whatever. Uh, what do we do with the plug lie? Another great question, Ted. And you know, up here in the Northeast, we get a, we we get new a lot of new sand, you know, starting up for the season, and you know, the ball sits in it. 
So because what's going on here, the ball is deeper in the ground, okay? So the first thing I consider is if the ball is an inch underground, I've got to get at least an inch and a half underneath it. Now, let's talk about the club. What What's going to help me get a deeper divot, the dig of the sand wedge or the bounce of the sand wedge? I, I think if I use more of the dig, I can get more under the ball. So that would be one consideration. How am I going to apply the the club itself to the sand? Number two, since I have to get deeper, I need a steep angle of attack. Okay, so in in general, I like to put the ball further back in my stance in the in the for bunker shots. The worse the lie gets. Okay, because I have to. The worse the lie to me means I've got to get steeper and more underground. So now the third thing would be a little bit more weight left, all right? And now we have to consider sand is friction, all right? Ball is buried. I need more power coming down. Most players don't have enough power in the sand for a regular a regular shot. You need to, like, triple it for this, okay? So if we're using more dig of the club, um, the face is probably going to be a little shut. So we have to aim a little right. The ball is going to come out hot. There's not going to be any spin on it. So our, our thinking is, let me just get it out of here first. I don't care about getting it close. If I do, that's that's a bonus. But let me get dig it out of this, this bunker. So think angle of attack. Think how to use the club properly. And think power. And, again, like we've said all night, you've got to practice these shots. Put some, put some balls in the greenside bunker. Step on them. Um, put them down a quarter of an inch, put them down a half an inch, and, and see how your club reacts to the sand. And uh, with a little practice, you know, you can fi- you can figure it out. But I, I would try those uh, elements to get the ball out of the bunker. Yeah, and, and again, these are, are shots that really most golfers, most especially high handicap golfers, are going to be faced with, in some cases, many times throughout their round. And are practiced very, very little unless they're in a practice sec- session with their instructor. Um, but then, sure. as I said, it sort of goes by the wayside when they when they go home and, and uh, the next time they go up to the range, they're not practicing for the most part a lot of the things we're talking about. So this is why I want to bring them up. Clint, I want to talk about bunkers for just another second, but I'm going to give you a little bit different twist. Um, you know, Brian talked about when it's plugged in. There's a lot of situations that doesn't matter really where you are, but we find ourselves occasionally in a bunker where some of the good sand is blown out and it's hard, it's packed, the ball's sitting up uh, on this hard packed sand where we don't have the option to dig in as much. How do we handle a situation like that? Because that, that stymies a lot of people. We see a lot of bladed shots, a lot of some pretty unusual things happening here. So when the sand is a little bit more packed and the ball is not sitting in the, the sand as, as typically mm-hmm. uh, we might find, and obviously can't plug. How do we handle a situation out of a bunker like that? Well, the way I would handle it is very similar to what Brian just described. We don't, if the, if it's hard kind of packed sand, um, then the bounce on your club is your enemy, uh, in my mm-hmm. opinion, because if it, you can't, it, it's going to get in there, it's going to bounce off of that end of the ball. So I've always, now just personally, when I get in those situations, I want to take not my, let's say a 60 degree, it's got full, you know, 12 degree bounce. That's what I normally use in the bunker. 
But when mm-hmm. I get in a situation like that, I'm going to take my 54 that's maybe got 8-degree bounce on it. It's not going to bounce quite as much. And I'm going to lay it open just a little. Uh, not a lot. I can't go, you know, digging because uh, if I dig into it, it it's just going to, you know, I, I might get away with a chunk and run, but probably not. So I'm going to try to get either my 54 or my gap wedge that doesn't have a lot of bounce on it, try to add loft to it by letting the, the, the club face open a little bit, and then you have to try to hit as close to the ball as you can. Uh, very tight. But, you know, we look at a, a general bunker shot. You know, you want to maybe catch the sand inch, inch and a half, maybe even a two inches behind the ball and, and blast it on out. This particular shot, you're going to have to try to c- catch the ball very close to the ball. Still need to hit the sand. We still want to use the sand to take the ball out of the bunker. We're still not hitting the ball first here. But we we definitely don't need to walk in there with a high bounce uh, 60 or a high bounce 56 uh, because it, that's going to, obviously like it is, it's going to bounce off that hard sand and it's going to blade the ball. So try to take yeah. the club that's got a lot less bounce on it, add loft to it, which is going to add too, by the way, but not quite mm-hmm. as, you know, not, not as much as you might think, but you still have to be aggressive. You, like Ryan said, you got to think power. you got to go ahead and get the ball out of the bunker. Um, you know, the, the, the first rule of thumb is get the ball out of the bunker. Then you can putt, maybe. But you can't leave it in there. So be aggressive. Um, what I see with most amateurs is that they desail through the bunkers there because they're afraid to hit it. Uh, just yep. get it out of there. Be aggressive. But uh, you might want to think about using a different club than what your normal sandwich would be. Yeah, and I, you're you're exactly right, Clint, because you know, what we see a lot of times is a deceleration. And ultimately what ends up happening is the very thing they're trying to avoid, A, leaving it in the bunker or hitting that bladed shot, ultimately ends up happening because they've decelled into the shot and now uh, they're not getting good weight shift, what have you, um, and they're coming into the back of the ball or they're thumping it into the sand and the ball's not going anywhere. So there's a lot of, you know, mishaps in either one, whether it's plugged or whether it's sitting up in a pack lie, uh, there's things that you need to do, and uh, you know, as we've said here uh, a few times tonight, is you need to practice these. And uh, unfortunately, most don't do that. Um, we're going to do a couple of uh, weather situations. I'm going to give each of you a different one, um, and and then we'll get ready to close out uh, here in Coach's Corner. Um, there's two really main things. Obviously, we're we're not going to talk about the heat and the cold. That's a whole different thing. But we're going to talk about uh, two of them. So, uh, Brian, I'm going to go with you first, and I'm going to give you the wind. Um, you know, we got enough hot air down here, so we're going to give you the, we're going to give you the wind and uh, and deal with that. Um, so we've got windy conditions coming from all different you know ways and and behind and front and side and whatnot. Um, how do we handle uh, difficult wind? Again, just give us maybe an example or two how we're going to handle uh, maybe some difficult windy conditions. Another great question, Ted. And, you know, golf in New Jersey in the spring here, you know, March, April, a lot of wind, you know, 20, 30 miles an hour. Um, we have to we have to deal with it. Again, I would go to attitude. You know, when course conditions get rough, you know, we're talking bad weather and wind and stuff like that, 
have a pretty good attitude and kind of say to yourself, you know, maybe six six of the holes I'm going to have to win with me, six of the holes I might have it against me, and six might be side to side. So it's going to vary as you as you play a course. So it's not always going to be in your face. Now, we have to think of how's the wind going to affect the ball, okay? If the wind's blowing right to left or left to right, we have to adjust our aim, number one. And if the wind's in our face or downwind, we have to adjust how far the ball's going to travel, okay? Now, I think experience and playing a lot definitely helps when you're playing in windy conditions um, to get a feel for how far the ball's going to travel. The other thing is I see a lot of people – up here, when the wind is in your face, they hit their wedges too high. Okay, they they pull out that sixty degree wedge, and the and the because the wind's in our face, it's going to spin the ball more up in the air. Try to practice. And we've been talking about practice. Try to knock your wedges down a little bit um, when you're faced with an in the wind shot. You don't want to get the ball up in the air. Okay, so the best way to hit it lower is a little less loft. Maybe choke down on the the club a little bit. That'll bring down also and try not to hit it so hard because uh, hitting it hard is going to spin the ball. So you you have to practice keeping the ball low on windy conditions, but you need to judge the distance and then your aim points. And, again, it takes practice and, um, you know, don't be afraid to go out and practice when the wind's wind's blowing because you can actually – have it in your face or at your back or left to right or right to left. Okay. Um, great question, Ted. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I'm a firm believer. I think that sometimes you have to create scenarios or take advantage of situations. Obviously, you know, when the weather is really bad, um, you know, you don't want to be out there or you end up like Lee Trevino and, and get hit with lightning or something. But, you know, if you got sure. a little wind gusting up there, uh, and that, Clint, that's why I'm coming to you. We're going to talk about uh, when it gets a little bit wet. And obviously there's some situations when it's really bad. I, I don't expect people to go out there practicing a downpour. Uh, but even, you know, after a, a good rain, um, like we've had here in the last couple of weeks, you know, you get some pretty wet conditions. Um, or if you're playing in, obviously that's going to affect the ball flight, uh, distances, things. And you know, your adjustment. So talk about some of the things there when, when you're playing maybe in, uh, you know, rain, when it's you're in the environment, what we're doing, if there's changes that need to be made, maybe, again, give an example, and or after maybe a good rain, uh, again, there might be some situations that you want to take note of and make some adjustments accordingly. So talk about that when we're dealing with the wet weather. How do we deal with some of that? Well, you know, as as far as like if I'm playing in a, you know, a little light drizzle or whatever, that, that's one thing. But playing in a downpour is, is another. We try to avoid those. I mean, the best advice I can give you if it's raining real hard is grab your umbrella and and, and uh, try to stay dry and see if it will pass through a little bit if you, if you have that luxury. But the, the thing of it is, I mean, obviously if it's raining hard, the, the rain is going to affect the ball flight. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to knock the ball. Obviously it's impacting it from top to bottom. So it eventually will knock the ball down um, if it's raining very hard. Uh, so obviously you'd have to maybe play a little bit more golf club and, and try to, to to move the ball as 
is with as much force and velocity through that rein as you could. And so that would be more of, I think, a, a, a little extra club and hit a knockdown, just try to really, you know, hit that stinger um, to help it to, to work through that. If it's just a misty rain, I, I don't think that it has a major effect on how you'd play. Um, you might catch, unfortunately, you might catch a few more flyers uh, out of the moist uh, grass. I think that's what you have to evaluate your lie to see what your chances are. Hey, am I going to catch a little bit of a hot flyer out of this little light rough? or uh, And then I need to make kind of adjustments if I can. But we all know that sometimes it jumps out of there and sometimes it doesn't. So it's still kind of a an iffy thing, but you have to, to me, I want to play against the flyer. I don't want to play hoping it's going to fly out of there. Um, so that way I can not let the ball get away from me quite so much as far as distance is concerned. Um, just under wet conditions, I thought rain today and we're going to play tomorrow. Um, you know, if it's soggy, uh, depending on where you're playing, I mean, you know, down in northwest Florida and here we have kind of sandy soil is not that big of a deal. You get more up in the north where it's a little bit more loamy soil. It may be more cushiony. So you'd have to really pay attention to your balance and your footwork, uh, which is obviously always important. But when the when the ground's a little soggy and, and moving, uh, it becomes even more important. Uh, so I might want to adjust, get just a hair bit um, uh, better stance, maybe quite not quite as wide. I won't be able to get my feet working easily. I don't want to have to struggle, and if I get my stance out too wide, then I may have a little hard time getting turned, having to use more force, which I might slip. So I'm going to bring my feet a little closer together, makes that body turn just a little easier, uh, and and just be able to take more club, give yourself a chance to get it up there without having to try to max out your body turn. Uh, and lose your balance and slip. So those are, you know, some general things to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's kind of hard to predict how the ball is going to fly out of a moist, um, you know, wet rough particularly, so you just have to take your chances. The distance on the ground, just to give you an example, I just want you to, to sort of follow up with this. I mean, you know, if typically, you know, whatever club you hit, uh, you know, obviously your driver, uh, if the, if the uh, again, depending on where you're playing in the south, it's, again, on the sandier soil, it doesn't have quite as as uh, dramatic effect as maybe up where Brian is up in the northeast. But right. you know, typically right. if you're hitting in wet conditions, and I'm not talking talking you know during a rain, but you know, and you're hitting your driver, um, you're, you're certainly might lose a little bit of distance in your carry. But obviously, sure. when it hits the ground, it's going to affect the ball as well. So just touch a little bit on that. You don't have to get into a great detail, but well, just, again, that yeah. has to be factored well, in as well. Right. It, it, what it comes down to, obviously, is that we got wet conditions. The ball's going to probably plug a little bit. It's not going to roll out as far. So whenever you start looking at how you're going to play a hole, um, you know, you're going to have to add some yardage. I mean, you got a 400-yard hole, and it's been raining uh, yesterday, and the ground's wet. You're probably playing a 420, 430 compared to when it's dry. So off the tee, I'm not so sure that that's a – you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the ball's going to – to hit and and not roll as far. When you start dealing in the fairway, then you you have to to think that probably the ball is going to, with the heavier soil, you may not get the ball to go quite as far, particularly if it's around the green. And, you know, let's say that you got a 150-yard shot uh, on a normal day. You really maybe only need to hit it 140. It's going to hit and roll out, right? 
So in this particular case, if you've had a good bit of rain, then you're going to need to hit a club that you can carry 150, which may mean an extra club. Um, you know, so with those things considered, it comes down to club selection. I think a little bit more on the second and third shots than it probably would be on the drive. Um, but remember that whenever you got that 150-yard shot on a on a firm, fast green, you may not need to hit it that far. That comes back to your normal club selection. But make those adjustments when the when the greens are softer because of the rain. You, you don't want to leave it 30 foot short of the hole. You hit a really good shot and it comes up short because it just didn't roll out. You want to take that extra right. club and carry it on the the true total distance to the flagstick if it if uh, it's that that moist. For sure. Yeah, and I th- yeah, and I think you can be a little bit again within reason, bearing in some of the things that you mentioned here. I, I think you can afford, especially when you're going for, uh, you know, going for the green, you can be a little bit more aggressive with your approach because sure. again, you're not going to get that roll. It's not going to you know roll off the back likely in most cases. Um, so you can be a little bit more aggressive going at the flag, assuming you don't have other obstacles there. But if it's an open green um, and the flag's in a, in a good spot. You can tend to try to aim and and get a distance that's going to get you a little bit closer because you're not going to get that extra roll uh, that you typically would in, in dry conditions. So, um, great great discussion, guys. Uh, I think we we hit all the uh, as they say the sweet spots. And I think although it's uh, you know we always say it's good to to build up your repertoire of different shot techniques and different uh, situations. Um, uh, but I think you'll have certainly more success if you build them on top of solid fun, uh, fundamentals. And I think that that holds true in, in every aspect of the game. I think if you um, aren't able to, uh, you know, master in the best of conditions uh, some good golf shots, uh, you're certainly going to struggle a lot more on these. So I think I think we've handled uh, most of the things that you're going to be faced with out there. Obviously not all of them, uh, but I think we've given you a good bite out of uh, some of these difficult shots and certainly – uh, in some difficult weather conditions as well. So you guys did a great job tonight with uh, with the discussion. Um, as always, I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to let the folks know if they want to reach out and if there's anything particular that you want to plug, uh, any upcoming events or, or anything of that nature, or if you're going to be uh, visiting an area and you're offering uh, your services out, outside of your normal, uh, please feel free to do so. Um, Brian, you can go ahead first, then Clint. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, number one, Ted, for having me on the phone, uh, on the uh, call. And uh, Clint, it's always great to uh, collaborate with you. Um, I can be reached up in New Jersey at uh, the club I work at, Trump National Bedminster. Um, I teach year-round. My cell number is 908-531-3637. That's the best way to get in touch with me. And my email is PGA at yahoo.com. Um, looking forward to a great season ahead. And if anybody's up this way and needs help with their game, feel free to give me a, a ring. Thanks again, Ted. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. And hopefully the weather will warm up a little bit for you over the next uh, several weeks. And uh, and uh, you'll be able to, to get out there and, and enjoy some of the uh, the beautiful countryside. And what New Jersey is a great place. And a lot of golfers up in that area, let me tell you. A lot of them tune into this program. And uh, a lot of them have been following us here for, for many, many years. So New Jersey is definitely uh, a top-notch uh, area to play some good golf. Uh, Clint, go ahead. Uh, best way to reach you. And if there's anything you want to plug, by all means, go ahead. Sure. Well, uh, obviously, we always have a good time with Brian and you, Ted. It's, a, it's great to do the show. I'm looking forward to the, the rest of the summer. Um, 
they can always give me a uh, email at, at clintgolf001 at yahoo.com. Uh, that's the easiest way to do it. And uh, I hope everybody understands it's springtime. Just get out and play some golf. I mean, it's beautiful here, and Masters Fever, where I'm at, is running rampant. Everybody's cranked up, ready to go. Uh, hopefully it'll be a good tournament. It won't be such a media uh, you know, fiasco with the live guys and stuff. I hope they just leave that be and let let's play some golf and find out find out how we're doing. But again, hopefully everybody have a nice Easter holiday and and season and uh, look forward to next time, Ted. All right, appreciate it, guys. As always, thank you very much for bringing your best to the coaches' corner panel, and I look forward to uh, the next time that you uh, join me here on uh, Golf Talk Live's coaches' corner panel. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Happy Easter to both of you. Uh, in case I don't talk to you before, and uh, enjoy the Masters. Uh, it's going to be an exciting, uh, interesting uh, Masters this year. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Yeah. Thanks so much. Good night, guys. All right, bye. Good night. Uh, that was uh, Brian Dobby and Clint Wright uh, joining me on the Coach's Corner panel, as I mentioned. And uh, as I wait for my special guest, uh, we're going to take a quick message, uh, advertisement from Golf Tips Magazine. We'll be right back with my special guest, Linda Harto. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, welcome back. We just wrapped up Coach's Corner, and now I'm on to this evening's special guest, who I'm looking forward to. She's been on a number of times on uh, over the last several years. Of course, I'm talking about the world-renowned uh, golf landscape painter, uh, Linda Harto. She's uh, uh, displayed her work's permanent collections of such legendary clubs as Augusta National, La- uh, Laurel Valley, Pinehurst, and Pine Valley. Uh, in some personal connect collections of such golf notables as Jack Nicholas, Ray Floyd, and Reese Jones, and in several uh, museums as well, including the USGA's museum uh, in Far uh, Far Hills, excuse me, uh, New Jersey, and the Morris Museum of Art in Augusta, Georgia. Um, we're going to talk about all of that and more. And she was also inducted in 2017 into the Low Country Golf Hall of Fame and has been honored. Uh, with the Golf Digest Lifetime Achievement Award. Please welcome my very special guest. Welcome her back, actually, uh, Linda Harto. Hi, Good evening, Ted. Linda. Hi. How are you? Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Looking well, forward to thanks. next week like everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, so what I thought we would do, I know we, we've talked mm-hmm. many times on air and uh, but what I want to do is I want to ask you this question first, and we'll talk about the Masters and and talk about uh, some of the, the great work that you've done, uh, you know, through the Masters and and the course at Augusta National. Um, mm-hmm. But what I want to do is I want to ask you this question. You know, you obviously are an extremely uh, accomplished uh, artist, uh, painter, and you know, there's so many beautiful things that you could paint out there. What was it about golf art particularly that you found most interesting? Why did you choose that? I mean, I'm, you may privately do other things. I don't know. But 
Um, mm-hmm. You've obviously built a, a lifetime career. What was it about golf art that really caught your eye and decided to, this is what I want to do? Oh, well, at the time when I first did my first golf painting, which was at Augusta, by the way, uh, I was painting a variety of subjects, really. I was doing uh, landscapes, portraits, equine, even equine portraits and subjects. So I was used to doing a whole lot of different uh, subjects, and, and mostly I love landscape. So when I was asked to do the 13th hole at Augusta, it was like not a big change. You know, it was beautiful landscape. (laughs) But the unique thing about it was that it wasn't like the kind of landscape I had done in the past, which is uh, just general landscape, you know, just natural Mm -hmm landscapes and when you paint a golf course you're actually painting uh much closer to the earth you're seeing the actual contours of the of the earth mm-hmm. which you don't really see in regular landscape so i found that really intriguing and very uh beautiful to work with those contours and the way the light hits them uh i i found that very exciting so Do you that's, find sorry, go ahead, finish your thought. Well, it's it's just that it was a combination of discovering the golf course for art and kind of golf discovering me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they encouraged me to keep doing it, so I was like, Okay, this is great. I like this, I'll do it. Well, when you when you certainly create some masterpieces like you have, and you know, people that have played this game or have been around mm-hmm. golf uh, for even a little bit of time, really do appreciate the beauty of a golf course. I mean, it's very, mm-hmm. you know, by those that that don't play it, I think it's very underrated. They don't understand because they've never really been out there. And I always say to people that have never played before, go to uh, you know, it doesn't have to be Augusta National, obviously, and and you'd be lucky if you can get on there, but. Um, but go to, uh, you know, if you're at a resort or something visiting and they've got a golf course, um, you know, when when appropriate, um, you don't be walking out when somebody's hitting shots, but, um, you know, go and, and just look at the golf course and just observe really the, the, the beauty yeah. of it because it is, it's very, very interesting um, when you think of, of some of the architecture that's been into it. So what I, my next question I want to follow up with mm-hmm. is, so you obviously made a decision to do that. Do you mm-hmm. find when you're when you're selecting something? I mean, obviously you're you're being commissioned to do uh, all of your work in that. But do you prefer um, something like a hole, let's say, that has when I say busy, that has a lot going on in it, or do you prefer something that's more simple where you can see more of the contour? In other words, what I'm getting at is, you know, if you're painting a hole and there's mm-hmm. a lot of scrub, there's a lot of trees, bushes in the back, whatever you want to call it, or do you prefer something that's a more open landscape but has a lot of contour? Does it, do you have a preference uh, in what you paint? Uh, you know, that's a hard question <laughs> because I <laughs> I approach every course and and differently as far as which hole am I going to paint at that hole, at that course. And it has to sum up a whole lot of different things. 
not just uh, maybe great composition or, you know, all those things, different elements that could be there. But I have to also take into account to what makes that course memorable, you know, what are its characteristics, its character, and incorporate mm -hmm. that into the selection. So, and also, what does the the player think? You know, what is his most memorable whole? Mm -hmm. So, all of those things come into play when I decide on a whole. And sometimes that's a difficult decision. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it may it may come down to a particular whole that just has such a uh, outstanding artistic look for me to to make me really excited about it. But I still, even if I see scenes like that, I still have to consider all those other elements before I make the final choice, if that makes sense. Do you have a personal preference, though? Like, And, I, and it's not a matter of, you know, I prefer necessarily to paint this, but what is mm -hmm. it when you're looking at a whole, mm -hmm. what – what example, give us an example of what kind of excites you more, like say, I'm really excited about doing this, and, and you don't have to name names or anything like that, I'm not looking for mm -hmm. you to, uh, you know, to, to step on anybody's toes, but I'm just saying <laughs> an example, like, no, you know, do you prefer, like, like, like 13, like I say, there's Augusta, is that the type of landscaping you really enjoy painting, as opposed to, you know, say, St. Andrews, where it's much more open, and you're looking at fescue, as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, wooded and azaleas and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a personal preference? Uh, again, it's a combination of everything that makes it – then they're all different. I mean, landscape is different at every course. Uh, the lighting is probably the most important element in my paintings. Mm -hmm. If I have to find that right lighting, I don't care what hole I'm doing or what right. – you know, I have to find the right lighting because that's – paramount to me and that could be make a difference on which hole sometimes uh at saint andrews of course it's it becomes really difficult because the way the sun sets and rises there's a lot of angles that are are just not great <laughs> so right. i like to go at a different time of year where the angle of the sun is better for that there's more mm -hmm. contrast uh if it's total like like say when you're playing golf midday let's say mm -hmm. it's the whole course is much flatter you don't see contours right you don't see a lot of the nuances of the course it's just a, a monotone now that i don't like <laughs> right so <laughs> I am looking well, for that excitement in the composition and the lighting, and yeah, that's that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, well, I can assure you, uh, Linda, that you might not see it uh, midday on the golf course, but as a golfer, I can assure you, you certainly feel those contours uh, when you walk <laughs> in the golf course. But you know, that's what makes it fun yeah. and challenging. Um, well, sometimes so let's I talk take pictures. I'll take photographs of it in midday because I can get a clearer idea of what maybe mm -hmm. the uh, the 
the well let's see how you would play that hole right right you know shadows yeah, so, sometimes disturb what you're seeing so yeah it almost yeah. plays tricks on your eyes a little bit right because sure. you're seeing yeah the shadow affects the contours and the the depth perception and that so yeah i could so see that so i'll take that you i'll take pictures of it at all times of day just so i'm really clear on how it lays out uh, how the how it works what are some of the, yeah, what are some of the holes, you know, with the Masters coming up, obviously everybody mm-hmm. um, is excited about that, and there's mm-hmm. been obviously some be- beautiful photos over the years that we've seen of Augusta National. What were some of your favorite holes um, that, you, <laughs> that you portrayed? I know I know there's a lot of them. I don't, but yeah, just pick a few. I have I, to I, say I, yeah, just 13. Pick a few. I think 13 is is one. I've I've actually painted it six times. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it is just a spectacular hole. I mean, it's just hard to beat. In fact, I'm featuring it on the homepage on our website right now and looking at it. It's it's just such an amazing hole. And the bloom on it, you know, the azaleas, the dogwoods, is it's just so stunning. The 12th hole, of yeah. course, the 11th, I love the combination of, uh, looking down 11 and 12 behind it, you can't beat that one either. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 16, I like some of the earlier holes or, you know, like the front nine, but mm-hmm. they're not as well known. And no. e- even if I liked them, uh, they didn't particularly want them because they weren't maybe as popular. They weren't the ones people wanted to buy. The prints. They wanted, yeah, they wanted Amen Corner is what they, what basically sure. they want. Well, everyone you know, does. And, and that, yeah. <laughs> named and, and named appropriately. Yeah, unfortunately, those are the ones that sell the most. So since I was sure. doing these for Augusta for sale, you know, making prints mm-hmm. for sale, then obviously if I wanted to sell them, I had to do what people want, which was right. okay and, with and of me. course. <laughs> Well, yes, of course. And obviously, you know, they're they're so recognizable from mm-hmm. people watching over the years, and then they see that, and, and it brings back. Um, now, which is interesting because I know that you get not just feedback from those that you're painting from, but when you because you've mm-hmm. done, uh, as you said, you know, six times you you've done you know thirteen and whatnot, and you've mm-hmm. done many others at, at Augusta National. What's 24. some of the feedback, <laughs> right? <laughs> What some of the feedback, not so much for who you're doing it for. I mean, obviously they're very happy or, you know, you wouldn't keep coming back all the time. But what's been some of the feedback from people outside of that arena that see your work? Because it brings a lot of, I mean, I know people that are emotional when they, you know, when the Masters comes on, and they're mm-hmm. just very emotional because it brings back so much, you know, very fond memories of earlier times and their favorite players over the years. I know when I see you know, saw Nicholas growing up and playing at the Masters um, and, and uh, you yeah. know, Ernie and that. What's been some of the response when people see your work and it brings that touches, that resonates, that that emotional? Uh, that's got to be something very special for you to hear. Maybe you can give us an example. Yeah, it really is. I mean, people so appreciate it. And, I, you know, I really work at it to get that feeling that you get there. I mean, when, when you're at Augusta, it's kind of this otherworldly 
glowing green place that <laughs> I've never seen anywhere else. And the elevation of the course is something mm-hmm. that most people aren't aware of until they're actually there. Um, you know, the TV doesn't give you that feeling. So I try to capture that in those paintings. I just try to capture those serene, (laughs) beautiful moments there. Uh, I don't put people in them because Mm -hmm. I think that people like to have their own feeling about it, uh, and they can put themselves in in the picture rather than if someone else is in it, it becomes kind of a narrative. It's part right. of a story. And I like to have the person that looks at this painting be able to put himself there and experience what I'm trying to convey to him, how magical that right. place is, for instance. I mean, right. it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to get that, but... You know, I have, well, I I'm very it, familiar with Augusta. I've been photographing it for what 38 years. So, <laughs> uh, tell us about have, your. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell us about your master's experience. I mean, I know you've been to, um, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, for for many years, Matt. Um, well, yeah, I've watched about, it change yeah, tell us so about much. Your, yeah. Tell the us first about your master's experience. I went to was 1985. I had done my first painting in 84, and we made prints, and I helped sell them at the Masters. And that was my first time. I had never printed my work before. So that was a unique experience. (laughs) And at that time, they didn't have all that big merchandising area. They had just the main pro shop. That was it. And they had a few little, almost like huts out on the course where they were selling different little things. But it was it was just so, <laughs> compared to what it is now, it was very primitive in one way. Right. As far as far as merchandising, so I've seen it change over the years. It's quite amazing. You know, they moved major trees and changed. <laughs> parking lots and move things around that you would never think could be moved. <laughs> what, well, come... yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's amazing what they can do. I know. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite memory of the masters? What, what's, you know, and obviously, I mean, we see lots of things when we're watching on TV, but you've been mm-hmm. there numerous times. What's your f- favorite memory from the masters? Well, I think just the camaraderie, between all of us that worked there the whole week, mm-hmm. for one thing. I mean, we all got to be good friends. We hung out together. We, And then at the end, you know, when the players turned on the back nine, the course mm-hmm. was empty. So, I mean, the right. merchandise tents were empty. So we all mm-hmm. gathered in, in the... Um, the offices upstairs and watched it and you know they had all the snacks and drinks and everything there and that was fun we we would watch the whole ending of the tournament there that was that was great a lot of people have said in their conversation this is why i'm asking you this 
um, mm-hmm. have said that there's a certain energy when you're at the mass. I mean, obviously, you know, TV can't do it justice, but a lot of people have said, you know, when I was at the masters, there was just something about it that just literally caused chills to run up your, your spine is some of the explanation is just, did you ever yeah. have that sense of feeling when you're, I mean, it's just, I mean, sure. you know, there's a thousand one golf tournaments that go around the world, but so many people describe their experience at Augusta national and the masters mm-hmm. differently than they do anywhere else. You know, you, whether it's a U.S. open or what, and I'm not trying to take away from the other events because they're certainly, uh, you know, mm-hmm. very prestigious as well, but there's mm-hmm. just something about the masters. What, what is it? Well, Why well, do you I think, think for that one is? Thing, for one thing, there's no other tournament much that goes to the same place every year forever. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have those extended uh, sense of, it's like going to St. Andrews. You get this feeling of mm-hmm. tradition and history there. It's almost like ghosts everywhere. <laughs> you know, right. you just you just sense this kind of metaphysical like, Wow, you know, you just have that tangible feeling almost. I know I've experienced it on St. Andrews for sure. Mm-hmm. And some of those courses over there, you just you just feel it. Uh and the other thing about Augusta is that elevation. Mm-hmm. You know, from the 18 on the top all the way down to uh Rays Creek in the bottom, it makes the sound so different. Right. And that, I think, adds to it. You get this almost stadium feeling where you're kind of connected to every hole on the course in a weird kind of way. Right. I mean, just from the roars of the crowd, you know where that's coming from and, you know, maybe who's there just by the scoreboards. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a connection, an energy connection, I believe that's yeah. It's tangible. Yeah, I couldn't. Agree, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's obviously given you is or certainly helped to give you a lot of enjoyment of mm-hmm. being able to commission so many great pieces there and so many memorable holes is because you've experienced that yourself and you understand from mm-hmm. not just the an artist perspective but for somebody a patron's perspective. Um, you've mm-hmm. been there. You've seen. You've walked the walk, so to speak. And so it's very easy for you to relate to what people might be feeling. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've had a very special uh, relationship there. So when I would come to take pictures, which was usually, you know, a week or two before the Masters, there was no one there. I was there by myself practically. And that's right. kind of, you know, when you think about it, just being there – with the course by yourself that's that's kind of special mm-hmm. you know watching the light yeah, I, change you know running around to all the different holes when the light is the way you want it and knowing when it's going to be a certain way on a certain time it, it's kind of unique you know very special to me to to know yeah. that course that well yeah, I know a lot of people who have been to the Masters over the years who are not mm-hmm. golfers. I don't mean professional golfers, but not, you know, really into golf, but mm-hmm. were invited through friends or what have you and said, hey, you know, I've got tick- an extra ticket to the Masters. Come, you know, watch it. And 
every single one that I've ever talked to that's gone, even if they never picked up a golf club in their life but just went for the, the sake of going, came back mm-hmm. with the same expression. It's like unlike anything they've ever seen and just had a, you know, a whole new appreciation for the game um, because it, it is so electrifying in that. Uh, so I can certainly understand how you would certainly feel that way being, you know, there so many times. And then, mm-hmm. you know, to further the fact that you've been able to um, piece together some, some great paintings that have, uh, uh, have encapsulated a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the feelings and, and so forth that are there. And mm-hmm. uh, just to let, let everybody know, I don't want you all rushing there right now because we still have more time. But uh, for those listening to the program, you can go to Harto. Uh, dot com and that's h a r t o u g h uh, dot com uh-huh. of course the www in front uh, you can find all of her great work there but wait until after uh, we're finished tonight because we still got a little bit more to talk about um, you can see some great stuff and I'll give you that email or that uh, website uh, again a little bit later on the broadcast for for the audience um, let's talk a little bit about the Academy of Golf Art as well uh, you're a founding trustee of that uh, uh-huh. a very small but distinguished group of of golf artists. Uh, discuss just a little bit of the history of the Academy. Well, it kind of started with uh, Golf Digest, actually. Uh, in the early 2000s, they started putting on these golf festivals at Pinehurst. And they invited every golf artist that was known to them, basically, to come there and exhibit and have kind of like a golf art fair, which was definitely a first <laughs> and uh, so a lot of us went, and it was the first time we'd ever been sort of together as artists exhibiting. And uh, we did that, I think they did it about three years, and then we decided, well, heck, you know, we really ought to organize. <laughs> so that's what we did. We started we started this Academy of Golf Art, and... Uh, it's it's just a, a way of connecting. Uh, you know, golf art is sort of not mainstream golf in one way. We're not really part of the game. Right. But we are the game, the visual part of the game. Mm-hmm. And we wanted an organization that would maybe connect uh, back to collectors and have shows, exhibitions. We have quite nice kind of relationship with the Morris Museum of Art, Gusta. Uh, And there's been many other exhibitions that we've had around the country. Um, So, yeah, it's it's been very nice. Uh, The economy hasn't helped it too much and sponsorships and all that. But we're still working at it, and we just now have a new president, and she's great, Jennifer Satterley, and she's She's going to take it to another level, I think. Uh, so we're very excited about what what's coming in that. We're going to, you know, advance our membership. And hopefully we you know, can get a home, you know, an actual home of the Academy in Augusta. That would be fantastic. Day. Yeah. You know, and, and let me just, for the, for, again, the benefit of the listeners in that, um, you know, you, you've obviously been very, uh, and I'm referring to the Academy of Golf Art is, mm-hmm. uh, organization, has been very uh, welcoming to new, uh, to its new members and, you know, who produce, obviously, golf art. And it's not just painting. Uh, it, it's a variety of it's different uh, genres, too. if you will. 
right? Mm-hmm. Photography, sculpture, you know, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we want people to take a look at that website if you're somebody out there that maybe, um, uh, you know, has developed, uh, you know, some, some golf art and, and uh, that's a passion or interest. You can mm-hmm. certainly go and visit the website to look. And you can also become a member uh, as well. There's opportunities there. Right. And the website there is academyofgolfart.org. Uh, we'll give that again later in the show. But uh, so that's really open to anybody that certainly has an interest yeah. um, or Anyone wants to support, correct? Anyone interested, it could be students, it can be just people that are interested in the genre and want to be a part of it somehow. So, yeah. Yeah. And sponsors, we'd love yeah. to have sponsors. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. And now, now more than any other time, I think it's a good opportunity for uh, for organizations, corporations, and that to give back mm-hmm. and to you know, uh, because it's not all about the playing of the game. There's so much more, as as you know, you pointed out here uh, many times on the show that people can, um, you know, do to really further enhance. And that brings me to the next, you know, phase of, of what I want to talk about, and that's the Golf Heritage mm-hmm. Society, which I know you're involved in. Well, so talk about your relationship with, and I'm going to use the short form, uh, GHS, which is the Golf Heritage Society. Explain right. your relationship with them and how that came about. Well, I just uh, I joined that organization long ago uh, just because it's mutual interest. I mean, I'm interested in the traditions and the history of the game as well. Uh, I study the history. Um, <clears throat> I've been to a lot of the historical places in Scotland, England, and Ireland. So, yeah, it was just a natural thing for me to become a member. And now that it's it's kind of morphed into a heritage society, it's more open to anyone interested in those traditions. So, it's um Yeah, I, <clears throat> we have kind of a mutual uh interest between the academy and the uh heritage society. It's a lot of mutual interest there. Yeah, and and you're right. There's a lot of synergy that can be developed between mm-hmm. the two organizations and and crossover, if you will. And they're having. I know um, you go a lot of times. Uh, I don't know if you go all the time or not, but to their uh, national convention, they have another one taking place this October from the 11th and to the 14th, uh, and it's going to be held at the Embassy Suites Hotel in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I know mm. they moved that around. Darn. I believe was it last? Yeah. Yeah, last year I I think wasn't it up in Pennsylvania or maybe it was the year before. Um, yeah, that was so they, their they, belated 50th uh, anniversary. Right. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't get to go. Uh, unfortunately, we had planned to have an exhibition there, but COVID kind of got in the way. <laughs> yeah. Are you? <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That but anyway, the, it's the it's really I really box. cut back on my travel, and and so it's it's just yeah, I have gone to many of their meetings. So yes. Yeah, and and it's a great opportunity. And I know, you know, Dr. Bernanke, who, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, has been on the show as well. Uh, I know he's talked a lot about it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more than, you know, it's not just the the history of the game, but there's so many things that people don't realize. So I know that you've had an involvement and obviously uh, exposure Mm -hmm. uh, with with the golf art and that and the uh, website for that. Uh, And also you can join the GHS, uh, the Golf Heritage Society as well. You can become a member of that as well. And it's... uh, uh, golfheritage.org is theirs. Um, I want to, as we move into the next uh, phase of things, I know that you um, 
have done so many different commissions in that, but you're sort of now focusing more on private commissions. Uh, we mentioned a few mm-hmm. in the opening, you know, Nick, uh, Jack Nicholas, Raymond Floyd, Reese Jones, and, and many others. Um, is there anyone that you're doing some work now uh, in, in private commissions that maybe you could mention and, and give us an idea of some of the things you're currently working on? Uh, yeah, I've been doing uh, quite a lot of uh, private commissions for clubs and also for just individuals that want maybe a painting of Pebble Beach or Augusta or St. Andrews, you know, the usual uh, famous, famous ones. But also, you know, I'd, I've done some things for like um, Jupiter Hills. They had their 50th anniversary and I did a whole huge painting for them and prints and for their celebrations and I did um, what was it the western amateur for Glenview I did painting and prints for them and then um, I have some upcoming things maybe one in Ireland and uh, yeah a few of the more famous courses that I'm painting just for individuals so so it keeps me busy (laughs) Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I can imagine. I mean, I really, I really stopped doing tournament work in about 2014. Uh, I had done 25 consecutive U.S. Opens and worked in wow. the merchandise tent there. I worked at Augusta every year in the merchandise. So, you know, I've kind of quit doing tournament work. It's a little, <laughs> a little bit grueling for me. Yeah. And, it, it, uh, it's yeah. it's a lot, and you know, obviously, I know you enjoy, um, you know, doing the various paintings and that. But uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot other activities that go along with it, and and yeah, you've done it for a long time, so I can understand wanting to scale back a little bit. Um, yeah. and, and you know, the golf art is really, um, you know, as a fine art genre, really seems to be growing too, as we talked about, and people are increasingly recognizing mm-hmm. the beauty and value. You know, it's not as you pointed out earlier, it's not really as mainstream uh, art as what uh, people might think, but it's gaining in popularity, especially as more and more people are being drawn to the game that have never been there before. They're seeing it and -hmm. they're saying, wow, there's something really here. So I'm sure you're seeing uh, a a bit of an uptick in interest from that standpoint too. Would would that be correct? Well, yeah, that was one of the reasons we formed that uh, academy was really to encourage other artists, maybe they're doing other subjects, but they love golf too, but they don't have a place or an opportunity to actually uh, exhibit that work. And that was the idea, one of the main ideas of the Academy, and that we would have an annual show where those people could show some pretty major pieces of work. It could be sculpture, it could be you know, major paintings by well-known artists that you would never think would paint golf. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Right. Um, excuse me. It's amazing who might come out of the woodwork if you offered the venue. Like mm-hmm. like say if if we could get to a point where we did something like uh, maybe like cowboy artists. Mm-hmm. You know that's a major huge event. And right. to have something like that, maybe during the Masters every maybe year or every other year, would be just huge. I think. That's yeah, my I think vision there's so anyway. much. 
<laughs> yep. No, listen, it's a, it's a good vision. I, I think there's so many opportunities for growth in, in this area um, that really hasn't, I mean, there's certainly, it's come a long way, as you mentioned, from, from when you first mm-hmm. started out. Um, and it continues to grow, but the, you know, as you're seeing more, uh, you know, newer generations coming through, being introduced to the game, um, and and looking at it from even a little bit dif- different perspective. I want to ask you just a couple more things. Um, sure. One being, and and just sort of a, a, a when I say brief, I mean just because I know it, there's a lot involved, but just so that people maybe tuning in for the first time that have never had the opportunity to hear you before. Give us just a, a quick rundown of what goes through when somebody commissions you to say, and you can mm-hmm. use anything as an example, but let's say, you know, the 13th hole. What's the process that you go through from start to finish? Just sort of a general overview. So people, fully, It's not just a matter of you plunk down a canvas and you start painting. There's a process, uh, no, some steps that hardly. you take. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, you've shared that with us before, but just for those uh-huh. that may be new listeners to the program, just give us a general overview of, what the process is from from start to finish um, that you go through so people get an understanding. Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, first of all, I like to go to the course. And, you know, if it's a course I've never been to or even one that I have, I like to see the whole course. And then uh, you kind of narrow it down to certain areas where you want to photograph. And then you have to just kind of live with those areas. I mean, you know, get up at dawn every day and uh, spend your day at the course and wait for the sun to set and kind of live with that hole. And you're watching the light, how's the light hit it. And, of course, also before that, you want to make sure you're going at a right time of year as well. I mean, you don't want to go to Augusta in the fall. I learned that a long time ago. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, people just aren't interested. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the season makes a difference. Uh, And when I'm going to, if I go to Scotland, I have to schedule at least two weeks uh, and at least one week per course because of the changing Mm -hmm. weather. Right. And, yeah, I mean, it's, there's just so many factors you have to factor in uh, to get what you need. And sometimes I don't get what I need, and I'll go back. Uh, I'll go back multiple times. And right. even in Augusta, even though every painting is supposedly April, <laughs> I would go mm-hmm. in December and photograph because the angle of the light was different and I liked it better. Mm-hmm. And since I had all the reference of all the stuff in bloom, I just add that, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, there were certain holes that I would just, the lighting, I just couldn't get the lighting. I just had to go at a different time of year just to get the light. Same at St. Andrews. Mm-hmm. Uh, multiple places I had to go back to. Yeah, and, but I and, try to go at yeah. yeah I try to go at the optimal time, knowing ahead of time maybe what hole I'm doing. Yeah, and sometimes weather doesn't cooperate as well. I mean, you might get in For a situation sure. <laughs> where the weather's yeah, and I can guarantee you that's happened many times over the oh, years, yeah. especially uh, you know not just at Augusta, but obviously at. Uh, um, St. Andrews and that you're going to and yeah. Europe particularly you're going to have some situations where the weather just doesn't cooperate so you might have to go yeah. back give us an, yeah, a, there, any, there were times 
that I would, you know, I'd watch all the tournaments too. So if I saw it was a really dry year in Scotland, say, mm-hmm. where everything was, there was no rough and no right, no natural vegetation, uh, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Well, I mean, it was dry. It, yeah. I mean, you know, some people may love brown courses, but I'm no. sorry. I want I want the course to be at its optimal. That's just me. I I know it's great to have a brown course for some people, but not for me. I think the majority of people would like to see some vibrant color and and, well, uh, I know. I, I remember when uh, I was at the, the last U.S. Open I went to at Pinehurst, and it was dry and brown. And I never heard, uh, you know, I'm in the merchandise tent, and there's 30,000 people going by me a day. And I'm like, they're all complaining, oh, this course is so brown, you know. It's just, they just couldn't right. couldn't see any beauty in it at all. <laughs> Right. Which was yeah, a shame. I can, I can, yeah, I can guarantee that'll never happen at Augusta National. Um, right. You know, with what they with what they go through to prepare that. I mean, it's always you know beautiful well, all the time. Sometimes it blooms too early, though. Right. Yeah, and th- that I can certainly see uh, can happen. But um, so, what is? And again, you don't have to be specific, but. What has what was the shortest period of time from start to finish, like time wise? Oh like yeah, that's true. Ever, that you've <laughs> that you've ever done, that. and what and what was the longest? No, that's okay. What was the longest time that you've had a project? So on two projects, what was the shortest project you ever had, and uh, that time wise that you were able to get everything that you needed to do, and what was mm. the longest one? So to date. Okay, the shortest one was one I did for a place in Nevada. And the painting was nine by twelve inches, so that didn't take too long. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> couple, couple of brush strokes. <laughs> right, that was about a month's worth. <laughs> believe it or not, even for that. And then the longest one I think was probably again the thirteenth hole at Augusta. That was way over six months, and the painting was. 33 by 78 inches, uh, and it sits behind the bar in the men's grill in the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. That took over six months to do. The larger now, it is, is, the that, longer it takes. Right, and, and that's also, too, there's a lot of detail in that particular uh, oh, painting, God, too. Yes. You know, yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> All those trees. <laughs> I mean, right. well, that's, huge that's trees. Why, <laughs> that, Linda, that's why I asked you earlier if you prefer, uh, you know, a, a more robust picture like that. With, I mean, obviously, as an as an artist and a painter, you know, you want to have that experience. But I, I, there's got to be, I'm sure, sometimes when you thought, boy, I just want something a little easier. <laughs> The paint, oh, well, not yeah. so many trees, yeah, you know, just to just to give me a break one of these times, you know. Well, that's true. Um, Some sometimes, you know, I in fact when I would go to my printer, and uh, you know, there was all this other artwork around while I'm working on my prints, and mine is sitting there, and it's just neon green, <laughs> and it's. 
shows up among all the others like a bright light because I'm working in these unbelievable colors that you don't see in nature every day. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, sometimes I get burned out on green. You know, I want to do something that's a little, has a more rough, I mean, I love doing Scottish paintings and Irish and all that because there are such, there's mountains and there's all kinds of other stuff yeah. <laughs> that makes it really yeah, you want to have uh, it. a break from doing one. You know, I, I don't ever want to paint one course all the time. No. It's no, you want diversity. great to be able to do the diversity and, and have, I, I mean, even if it's a great uh, sky, I mean, that's mm-hmm. exciting. I did one of, um, yeah. what is it, uh, uh, can't think, next to Pebble Beach there, a Spanish, oh, sp- not uh, Spanish. Yeah, Spyglass? Yeah, Spyglass. No, spy. I did the third yeah. hole at Spyglass. And it was just this stunning sky coming at you in a 20-mile-an-hour wind off the ocean. You know, it was incredible. And But I captured that in that painting. It was so exciting to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so, I, I could understand that from your perspective, that you, you would want mm-hmm. that diversity. I mean, again, it, mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of beauty in, in painting many of the, the – uh, you know, images that you've done over the years, but again, you want something a little bit different. Is mm-hmm. there, and you, you've done so many, so I'm sure it's probably hard, and, but I'm sure there's some that obviously you haven't. Is right. there a, a golf hole or a golf course that you have not done yet that you'd like to? Oh, maybe, yeah. maybe somebody's listening. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's many, but one particular is the one that stands out. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but I mean, is there one yeah. or two that stand out and say, I've never done this. I would really love, so if somebody's listening, you know, give me a call kind of uh-huh. thing or visit me. You know, w- give me an example or two of, of something that you would love to do that you haven't done yet. Um, I think a Cypress Point, for one. And then mm-hmm. there's some Western courses, you know, that have a lot of mountains and things. I've only, I haven't done that many in the West. Uh, and before I started painting golf, I had done a lot of Western scenes. So I loved the the desert and, you know, the mountains and stuff. Um, and there's some great courses out there. And I just haven't, just haven't done one. I did one at Stone Mountain, I think, in Arizona, Tucson. But that's the only one I've done like that. So... Anything out what west about in, would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, like Colorado has some Anywhere. beautiful courses that are yeah, and Love uh, the I know west. there's I know Jack Nicholas has one up in around I think Banff in Canada. Oh yeah. Yeah, um, that's a beauty. Uh, I think it's called Nick, Nicholas Norris or something. Something mm-hmm. like that where you're really into a lot of other landscape. It's mm-hmm. not just the beauty of the golf course, but the the scenery that goes around with the mountains and the sky yeah. and, and whatnot. That would one be something the- that uh would be on your bucket list, uh, I guess, of, of things yes, to do. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I, one of my favorites that I have done was uh, Royal County Down. I mean, that mm-hmm. one had everything in it, too, mountains and sea. and That was a beautiful, one of my favorites. And there's so many uh, great Irish courses yet. 
and mm-hmm. and Scottish. They're just they're everywhere. <laughs> they're great everywhere. Right. <laughs> Australia, uh, you know, I've never been there. And uh, New Zealand has some yeah. stunners too that I've seen. And even yeah, there's there. Yeah. <laughs> There's some beautiful courses, yeah, for sure, all over the place. And mm-hmm. what what's interesting about them is they're u- uniquely different. You know, people say, well, it's a golf yeah. course. But, but it's not. When you go to the different areas, I mean, even within the United States, if you go the southeast to the northwest, right. to the, you know, southwest to the northeast, there's a lot of diversity. I mean, you know, yes, mm-hmm. there might be 18 holes and, and um, you know, uh, some similar shapes to the holes, but they're so different because the grasses are different, the landscape is different, the backdrop is different. So you you see a lot of diversity even just within America, but then you go over to Europe again, it's a whole different viewpoint there, um, you know, to other areas as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. What I want to do before we we wrap up is just to um, let the folks know, I'm going to just give the, the other two websites real quick again, if you're... Uh, been listening to the show and you have some interest in, in becoming a member or joining the Golf Heritage Society, uh, you can visit their website at www.golfheritage.org and uh, they'll be happy to uh, uh, to sign you up there. And uh, there's a lot of great information there. If you're somebody that's really interested in the history of the game, that's a great place to go. And if you're uh, somebody that's interested in golf arts, not just necessarily that you uh, produce golf art, but maybe you're just interested, you can uh, go to the Academy of Golf Arts website, which is academyofgolfart.org, uh, and uh, you can join there as well and become a member. Uh, lots of great things to find there. And if you're definitely uh, an artist who, uh, whether you paint or, or produce sculptures or even photography, uh, you can mm-hmm. become a member there as well and, and contribute and exchange and share some great ideas uh, at the AGA as well. And then finally, most importantly, uh, you can check out Linda's great work. Um, she has a lot of uh, print and obviously uh, paintings that you can see and, and obviously um, uh, can uh, certainly purchase. And her website is harto.com, and it's www.hartouth.com. Lots of great yeah. stuff there. You can get a sneak peek at some of the stuff that she's, uh, I guess, in transition. They're not quite completed, but there's always things that work in progress, I guess. Might be a way to put. Yeah, there's some interesting things on the website where you can look at a painting in progress. Just, you know, we were talking about the process. And you can see, uh, you know, I take pictures as I paint it. Uh, You can just kind of see how I do that. And then also, I want to say we're we're, during Master's Week, we're doing a Guess the Mm -hmm. Winner contest where you. We're giving away a limited edition print of the 16th hole at Augusta. So you have to sign wow. up for the emails. And we do a lot of these guess the winner contests. So they're kind of fun, you know. And you mm-hmm. get a print and, if you win. So and, it's kind of fun. And they can, get, they can get all that information on your website, right? Yeah. You just you have to sign up for the newsletter just to – the emails just to – be able to get mm-hmm. the guess the winner email, but yeah, it's it's fun. You know, I love doing that. Gets people involved in the, each tournament every week, especially the big tournaments. I like to give away oh, yeah. a really special print for for those. So, like, uh, uh, that's something definitely. It's well worth uh, signing up. And again, it's uh, 
harto.com and it's mm-hmm. uh, www.hartouth.com and all of the information there and a lot of great things to look at as well. Um, and uh, now are you going to be going to the Masters this, this year or are you just going to watch it? I am going to watch it. That was one thing about working there. You didn't get to watch much. <laughs> so it's really a treat to be able to watch it. Right. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. It's uh, nice to, to be in your comfy uh, uh, home to, to be able to watch it and some always some great coverage and you get to see all the action. Um, yeah. And uh, your your feet don't get as sore either from having oh, to walk boy. around. Oh, boy, you aren't so, kidding. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um, and for those that might have been listening that maybe uh, you know somebody at some of the courses or some of the areas that we talked about, um, Linda just might be up for a private commission uh, and produce something at some of these areas that we talked about just a few moments ago. So, uh, again, you mm-hmm. can reach out through her website as well. So, Linda, as always, it's a pleasure. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy. I hope you enjoyed yourself tonight. I certainly did. Oh, I, I always like- learn something new when you come on. And well, uh, much continuity. Your, your, your questions are so good. They really stretch my brain, that's for sure. <laughs> well, they and stretch mine, too, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> they stretch mine, too, as well. Linda, it's always a pleasure, and always love to have you come back. You're welcome back anytime. And great. Uh, much continued success, and keep Thanks. doing the great work that you do. And uh, I will, uh, once we uh, uh, end this, uh, this segment, I will... Uh, give out the websites and that one more time before I close off the program. But thank you very much, Linda. You have a great and enjoy the Masters. I will. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was uh, uh, world-renowned golf landscape uh, painter, uh, Linda Harto. And, again, uh, the websites uh, I gave out earlier for the Golf Heritage Society, if you go to www.golfheritage.org, uh, you can certainly become a member uh, of the Golf Heritage Society and a lot of great information there. All of the stuff that you need is on the website. And just a quick reminder, their national convention, the GHS National Convention, is taking place October 11th to 14th in 2023 at the Embassy Suites Hotel in Lexington, Kentucky. So if you want to head out that way, if you're going to be in that way, whether you're vacationing or you're in the area, uh, you can certainly check out. They have a lot of things going on as well, but they'll be listed on their website. So, again, you can visit that. And as I mentioned, whether you're an artist or not, if you want to learn more about uh, uh, golf art, you can uh, certainly join, but you can very at least go to the website, academyofgolfart.org is their website, and lots of good information there for uh, young aspiring artists or for those of you that may be uh, producing some golf art for many years and just want uh, an opportunity to share with some like-minded people. Uh, that's a great place to start. And again, last but not least, uh, Linda Harto, my very special guest of the evening. Her website is harto.com, and it's www.hartouth.com. And uh, she said they're giving away uh, a very uh, interesting print at the 16th hole of Augusta National. For those that guess the winter, there's a, a, a special drawing that's going to take place. You just have to sign up for the newsletter, and you can do that on her website. So, again, Thank you very much for tuning in tonight. A special thanks again to uh, Clint Wright and Brian Dobby for joining me on the Coach's Corner panel earlier this evening. And also, uh, again, a special thank you to Linda Harto for joining me here as my special guest. I'll see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live with another great panel and another great guest. I hope you join me. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. 
We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel, and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.